The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. It's Friday, March 6, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, the International Criminal Court overruled a lower body and cleared the way for a possible prosecution of United States forces for war crimes and crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. The Trump administration had been trying to block the court. It had worked up until the appeals level, which said that U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and CIA agents could be charged for crimes going back to 2002. Who are the judges in this case? Well, according to a fact sheet provided by the ICC, the ICC judges are persons of high moral character, impartiality, and integrity who possess the qualifications required in their respective states for appointment to the highest judicial offices. That's great, but none are Americans. And while I laud the ICC for the work it does and has done in areas like Cote d'Ivoire and Congo and with the Lord's Resistance Army, by the way, if you're wondering what about the former Yugoslavia, they had their own dedicated court. They, they do a good job for countries that can use and need a body like the ICC. But I think it would be wrong for the United States to allow its citizens to be subject to justice meted out by the ICC. See, the United States isn't even a signatory to the court itself. Therefore, I don't think you should be allowing United States citizens who are fighting under the flag at the behest of the United States to be prosecuted by the court. I'm not saying that it's impossible that they committed war crimes or crimes against humanities. It's just not this court that should prosecute them. This, by the way, may be an issue where I most align with John Bolton. Well, we both think the Russians are plenty nefarious. But the United States is the most powerful player in the world. And just as we say, as the most powerful player, we should be a strong part of NATO. We should dictate terms in terms of everything from trade to humanitarian assistance throughout the world. And just as we are powerful and recognize it in those contexts, we should do so in this one. No U.S. president should ever allow a U.S. soldier to have handcuffs slapped on him or to be placed in a witness box by a body operating outside a treaty agreement with the United States. Countries, of course, need to act humanely, but they also need to act in their own self-interest, and allowing such a prosecution is not in the United States' self-interest. But you know what the U.S. also needs to do? It needs to make sure the ICC doesn't prosecute the U.S. for war crimes because the U.S., will prosecute the U.S. for war crimes. Perhaps more ideally, the U.S. would not commit war crimes. Perhaps ultimately, ideally, there'd be no war. Let's take it a couple steps back. But seriously, the Trump administration just hurts and embarrasses itself when it refuses to do the job of humanity and rightness, but also strategy in prosecuting soldiers who do wrong. So Mike Pompeo was livid that the court would dare to investigate the United States, but the Trump administration created that situation when it does things like pardon former Navy SEALs for crimes and breaches of conduct. If the United States wants to stand apart from this court, we also need to stand above. And by the way, this issue won't happen. What a fascinating issue to raise during a Bernie versus Biden debate, eh? On the show today, I will spiel about how Bernie Sanders clearly was the very embodiment 
of the superior electoral strategy of exciting the youngs. That's what the Democrats need to do, excite the youngs through a guy like Bernie, if you can't tell I'm being sarcastic. Mike, you might ask, do you bring the receipts in this argument? Yes, I bring the receipts. You know, Joe Biden is the center. Joe Biden is this year's Hillary. Joe Biden is not going to excite the base to get out there and vote on November 3rd, 2020. That's just one receipt. But first, a musician and just a compelling raconteur. But, and this is the great thing, he's not in the band, the raconteurs. He founded Pavement, sang with the Jicks, and now Stephen Malkmus is solo. Though not for this conversation, I was there too, and we talked SantaCon, among other things. Stephen Malkmus, up next. The press notes for the new album, Traditional Techniques by Stephen Malkmus, notes that this is Malkmus' third solo LP. Now, you would be forgiven if you lost count because after Pavement, he had seven albums with the Jicks, but the first was just called Stephen Malkmus with a picture of Stephen Malkmus, and there was no mention of the Jicks on the cover, but that is not technically a Stephen Malkmus solo project. We should also note that Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper once had an album called Debbie Debbie Gibson is Pregnant with My Two-Headed Love Child, and that was not a Debbie Gibson album. So it all makes sense in a way. I mean, if you know Stephen Malkmus, it does. He's here with me to talk about his traditional techniques. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great. (laughs) I'm here to talk. Let's do it. What were the techniques that uh, drove... Okay, I'll ask it this way. Did you want to write an album with uh, these kind of instruments, or were you writing a certain kind of song and said to yourself, oh, so these kind of instruments are more suited to the songs I'm writing now? <laughs> uh, no, I wrote with the with the instruments in mind. like Or, you know, like mm-hmm. I was... Uh, or I was playing those and seeing what came out of them. A couple songs, of course, you know, don't fit the narrative. You you try to do them in every kind of which way. Um, you work on your material, throw it against the wall in a, diff- in a faster tempo, guitars, banging drums, and I never released them, and so I tried them that more tender acoustic way that you will hear more traditionally technical um, <laughs> And uh, that's just how it works. But once the ball started rolling, I fixed. I put everything in the same, you know, um, genre, as it were. And be the one who defends you when the odds are stacked up high like rotten dominoes. I'll be there to vent the jury. Do you go to a record store or a music store and see an instrument, buy an instrument that you haven't played, and then try to teach yourself that? Is that a thing you do? No, I, well, I I buy trendy instruments. Like, uh, I don't know how many music people you have on, but the last seven years there's been a, a Mellotron copy mm-hmm. that you'll see it on, like, every stage. And I bought one of those, too. And so I was like, and I have more of a, yeah, I want, if I buy it, I want to use it. It might take me a while, just like a new shirt, you know, and when I get a shirt for Christmas, I sometimes won't even, I'll just put it in the closet for six months and then I'll decide to wear it, but instruments the same way. But I do feel compelled to use it. I don't like to be wasteful. I'm from, you know, an era that of parents that were children of people that suffered through the Depression um, and 
also suffer from depression. But. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I read an interview with you and in, I think Stereo Gum, speaking of shirts, and it was about you playing tennis, but you were in a button-down shirt. Was that just mm-hmm. for the shoot or you play tennis in button-down shirts? No, I was just there uh, on my press tour and I just ended up at some courts over in Greenpoint yeah. or Williams, and maybe in Williamsburg. Young man had never like swung a racket in his life and was, you know, as most music uh, junkies was not like particularly coordinated. Yeah. So I was fine, uh, fine in a, t- in a button down. And th- of course, back in the day, I wouldn't be surprised if the original players, if they weren't wearing religious garb, were wearing, you know, the equivalent of a tuxedo. <laughs> you mean pre-Rod Laver? You yeah, mean, you mean like the French aristocrats? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really <laughs> the, right, the, the right way to do it. <laughs> um, what on the new album, do you always compose on guitars? No. H- how do yeah. you decide? Well, I'm best on guitar. That's my natural thing. And I just decide that I better try something else because it's getting boring. So I do it on a keyboard or piano. I mean, there's not really other that many other things... I would never write a song. I mean, the amount of hits that have been written on saxophone first, I think it's pretty rare. And, you know, it's going to be piano. What's that? Yakety yak. Yeah. So it's going to be piano or, you know, if we're talking this tradition from Brian Wilson to Kurt Cobain, Mm -hmm. it's going to be one or the other. Yeah. But when you do, you write a white man, but. (laughs) Do you hear a song in your head and then go to an instrument or do you sit down? Without I a usually, concept first. I usually sit down without a concept. Okay. But I'll, sometimes I'll hear a song and I'll want to nick, nick a bit. You know, like I'll just uh, hear a little couple notes mm-hmm. that I'm like, that's catchy. And then I'll try to remember it and go back to my guitar. And, you know, I, I won't really sound like it by the time I get done with it. Uh-huh. It's not going to be a complete uh, ripoff. I've read lately that... I saw an article in the paper that people really worried about um, sounding like other songs, at least on the pop level. You know, that they're the people that decide whether you've stolen a song from another song. They're like average Joes. Yeah. I guess it's the jury. As yeah. I, I guess that's what they meant. And they don't have sophisticated ears, so they might just think something's... A, co- a rip-off of something else, even if it's not. Um, well, now it's like patent trolls. Songwriting is perhaps, uh, wouldn't be evolving, but moving towards that direction, where with the with the Marvin Gaye estate yeah. suit, it seems to open up a lot of songs way beyond George Harrison and the Chiffons, right? How, many, how be many notes are there? I believe son- sonic, <laughs> sonic ambulance chasers all around, you know? Kind of like having a better call Saul ad. If you hear a song, <laughs> sounds like yours, give Saul a call. I'll triple your money. That's a great concept. I would I would watch that sitcom. Netflix just uh, greenlit that sitcom, actually. <laughs> Sonic yeah. Ambulance Chaser. You did say, so you sometimes think of a song and you'll always go to guitar when you do, or do you ever think and say, oh, I thought of this melody, but it's right on, right for the piano. Not really, because you're going to be singing it in the end. Yeah. Um, it's kind of what to get. In the end, I'll have a good melody, but I do have to uh, sing it. I mean, to I have to feel natural. Whatever I'm playing with it, my voice has to sound right on top of it. So I would go to 
melody might be played first on guitar, but then I play it on the voice and see, and I don't play, or I just do a Sonic Youth and sing the melody and play the melody, or yeah. you know, like that's a, not a bad thing to do. A lot of hit songs do that. You played with them, right? Did, don't you have like a album essentially with those guys? Mm, we toured with them. Yeah, I like. I'm a I'm a fan of the of them. But there there are a lot of songs that you can hear uh, um, the melody and the person just sings right along with it, and that works. But uh, usually you strip it back off the instrument and just let the dude, the person or woman sing it and uh, don't double down. <laughs> when you hear uh, stories of Keith Richards essentially mm-hmm. dreaming the riff to satisfaction in a hotel in Clearwater, has anything like that ever happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do they work? Are they are those songs that are in existence yeah, that we know? Yeah. I've heard In the Mouth of Desert is a song that I thought of on on uh, Earth Day, and I took uh, synthetic mescaline, and like I started hearing this really simple song, like pulsing in my head during Earth Day out in Central Park. And I remember I just was humming it. It's like four chords. And that became a song that is people quite like and pavement lore. Yeah. And that brings me, anything that brings me closer to Keith Richards, you know, like even in the most far away way and like a podcaster asked me about it in relation, I'm really happy. <laughs> You'll take like, it. <laughs> yeah, he's my favorite all-time dude in the music industry. So Yeah. I would think synthetic mescaline would just be his baseline. That's just his morning coffee, though. <laughs> he didn't. Probably, he don't. No, he he only had the fine stuff. Uh-huh. He had like the Merck cocaine and good weed. I think somehow. He, I don't know, even know. I mean, I, obviously, if he was doing dope, I bet he did street garbage. So it's not entirely true. I mean, I think every junkie eventually gets to that. Yeah. So, couple random questions. I was just in preparation for this interview going over some of your career, and I don't know if I've ever watched the video for Gold Sounds. Mm-hmm. Do you think you get... So, in the video, Pavement essentially dons outfits. They're Santa Claus outfits. They go bow yeah. and arrow hunting. They get a turkey. Do you think you guys are in some way responsible for the scourge that is SantaCon? Um, yes. I feel bad about it because, like, everyone hates SantaCon, and... It doesn't take place. It only does it only happen in Manhattan? Does it happen all over the nation? Oh, it's everywhere. Okay, yeah, because it doesn't really happen. <laughs> like, clowns were big for a second too. You know, this two and pirates. So this two shall pass. But I do, while thinking it was kind of funny at the time to get a really cheap costume and <laughs> sort of be. Uh, I mean, I really feel we were more like bad Santa. Mm-hmm. Um, in that you know we're kind of like santa's down on your luck santa's or and i guess these santa's are obviously influenced by bad santa too because you know you you enter into the whole whole world of just like bad santa's that aren't on the up and up yeah and so i we're we're part of it you can't choose who will be your fans? No, and when the Santas come, you just say thank you, thank you for. <laughs> They'll be gone though. Me. They'll be that'll be over like, not not too long. This won't keep going. So I, I, I you know, from from your <laughs> mouth to Chris Kringle's ears, my friend Matt, who's the biggest Pavement fan fan I know, said he had a question, which was, 
Was Pavement a band that tried very hard that always wanted to give the impression it didn't try hard? Um, we tried hard, but I, I don't think we were trying. I mean, I'd, there's a certain way that I would sing. I wouldn't try to, if you can't hit notes, you probably shouldn't try to hit them. Or, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, just be like, okay with it. And maybe it's more just uh, confident in wearing, you know, like not tucking in your shirt and like not having a really cool haircut. And it's more like that. But I mean, there's certainly a case could be made that if you listen, if you're a true fan, you've heard all the other versions of the songs and there's been multiple things that the maestro decided weren't good enough, uh-huh. you know? So that shows, <laughs> like, a bit of care in the right. finished product uh, of trying, you know, whether or not, you know, trying to not try. I mean, ultimately, it's trying, right? Has, yes. Even <laughs> even editing is trying. Yeah. Yeah. Has your cull to herd ratio changed uh, as, you've, as you've progressed as an artist? My what call? Call the amount oh, of yeah. material you leave aside because yeah. it's not right for that project. Yeah, I don't know. The even this uh, album that I'm here promoting, mm-hmm. even though I love talking, I'm here for a reason. Uh, it has songs that were not right until this time. You know, songs that I decided to try this way. You know, I. And I demoed them in the same style that they're on the record, but I waited to demo them like in the idea of playing acoustic, no electric, like more soft singing and lower register, you know, like, I don't know. Little things like that change, can change things. Are there notes now that you can't hit that you used to be able to hit vocally? I don't think so. I think I can make up for it with a little bit of technique. Uh huh. Um, like I've listened to some vocal uh, on YouTube. There's a guy, Eric Arsenal. He's you have to s- struggle through some ads if you don't have YouTube red yeah. or uh, ad blocker. Uh-huh. Like in my house, I don't have to see the ads. But he has this four-step vocal exercise thing, and he's I like now every little tick of what he 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 says by now because I listen to it before every show, you know, and just like get my voice ready. So that can help singing from the belly more and not getting tight up here, as Eric would say can help you hit notes. And so I, I just can't scream as much. There's no doubt about that. I can't, Eric can't help me with being willing to have an aneurysm, which I used to. Yeah. And now I don't. Wait, so is your relationship with him purely that you came across his YouTube videos? Or mm-hmm. have you ever, does he know that you are influenced by no, him? No, but he's, he helps people on like uh, the voice and stuff. He's, but you can do one-on-one. You, it's an advertisement for him to do one-on-one right. YouTube with him. Uh, I th- or like I think you can do e lessons um, on FaceTime. 
Over, I assume, over, but I haven't paid for that. You know, I just I'm just getting the basic thing. That's yeah. enough for me. Do you think that uh, knowing that you're out there promoting his brand is helping it? Yes. Okay. Anyone, which I showed it to Kurt Vile. Uh huh. And I learned it from my drummer Jake. I just I wish I would have done it sooner. Occasionally on some of the records, I would have probably sung like four. It only helps you like five percent or mm-hmm. to four. But you know, and the game as important as this, these margins. That's right. You know, <laughs> when you're at the big leagues, the mar- that's what yeah. they say in these tennis the matches. Extra four percent. Yeah. yeah. When Dominic Thiem lost to. Uh, Djokovic in the Oz, he's like, it was just the slimmest of margins, just a couple of points, you know, it's just in the details, one or two things. So that's what I'm getting. <laughs> and then yeah. if things are going bad, uh, before they installed the roof, the rain comes, <laughs> yeah. you take a break. That's yeah, totally. how it goes in the world yeah. of rock and roll yeah. and tennis. <laughs> Stephen yeah. Malkmus's new album is Traditional Techniques. Thanks for coming in, Steve. My pleasure. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel. So if you listen to this show, and you do, I can prove it. You just heard me say, if you listen to this show. You know that one of my obsessions has been, in these last few months leading up to votes actually being cast, an obsession was this choice that supposedly had the Democratic Party riven. Do we need to nominate a candidate who will woo Trump voters back or over to the Democratic side, one theory of the case, or maybe we need to excite the base with new voters. This sometimes got phrased as bringing back the Obama coalition, which meant higher turnout in general and for the Democrats in particular. Annoyingly, the obvious right answer was often said by some people who didn't want to take a side. Well, why not do both? Yes, yes, sure, do both. Have a great election, win all the votes, and have a lot of them. But, you know, if you have a choice between being a great offensive team in the NFL or a great defensive team, the cop-out answer is, why not be both? Well, you have to emphasize how you allot your resources is what I'm saying. Now, sometimes the reason that I get enraptured by a debate is that there is no good answer. It's a true conundrum. And sometimes I'll arrive at a conclusion, but then another consideration occurs to me. Maybe I'm weird. I like that. I like to be confounded. I like to have my expectations upended. But other times, I'm compelled by an argument because I just want to scream over and over again, how is this even an argument? And the one we're talking about here, that was one of those cases. Because the math, just basic math, the numbers say this, Hillary Clinton got fewer votes than Barack Obama did in 2012. You know how many fewer? 100,000 fewer. There were 100,000 fewer Democrats who did vote for her than voted for him. And that's where we get the, let's bring back the Obama voter part. But even though Hillary Clinton did get 100,000 fewer votes, she lost 7 million votes to people who did vote for Obama and then switched to Trump. So let's try to get back those 100,000 who stayed home back to the voting booths, or let's change the mind of the 7 million out there who are already going to the voting booths. What's a smarter move, do you think? 
There's actually a little more nuance to it than that. I will admit that, like the role of third parties. And there were actually some Romney Clinton voters. Okay, so just as there were all these Democrats who voted Republican for Trump, there were some Republicans who voted Democrat for Hillary. But on the show, I interviewed expert after expert, and I researched it thoroughly. And between the two approaches, if you had to pick one, and you can't say both, tapping the swing voters, not convincing those who stayed away, clearly the better way to do it. Now, that was just the people I interviewed. Jeffrey Skelly of 538 and John Favreau of Pod Save America. Wasn't all the people out there who I constantly heard from on TV networks. Well, this was treated not just as a very live question, but one where the opposite answer, exciting the base, was treated as correct and exciting. Here's Aisha Moody-Mills on CNN. What these candidates are going to have to do is to actually mobilize and excite the Democratic base. If they do that, then when it comes to the general, making sure that they can maintain enthusiasm from Democrats, let's be clear, Hillary Clinton, a lot of her challenges were that 9% of the, of the Democrats who voted for Barack Obama chose to stay home. That's not true. 2012, Barack Obama, 65.8 million votes. 2016, Hillary Clinton, 68.9 million votes. By the way, Romney had 61 million votes and Trump had 63 million votes. I rounded up in each case with both candidates. And also, of course, Trump not only got 2 million more votes, he got them where they counted. So now in that clip and some of the coverage, it seemed like it was just being offered as it's just the right way to win an election. But so often this election analysis was offered by someone who clearly preferred a progressive candidate, usually Bernie. Because Bernie, as the progressive, was clearly the guy who could excite the base, who could resurrect something like the Obama coalition. New voters, young voters, voters of color, exciting progressive ideas. That's how you spike turnout, as opposed to just trying to convince the crossover voter who might be older and whiter and not nearly as in a desirable demographic. This strategy was phrased pretty concisely by Michael Moore. You know, Joe Biden is the center. Joe Biden is this year's Hillary. Joe Biden is not going to excite the base to get out there and vote on November 3rd, 2020. 70% of the people voting next year are either women, people of color, or young people between the ages of 18 and 35. That's 70%. Who is going to excite that 18 to 35 year old person? Who's going to excite women and, and, and African-Americans and Hispanic people. On MSNBC, which is where that Moore clip was from too, Joy Reid and Chris Hayes worked themselves into quite an agreement over the importance of exciting new ideas over a message that could possibly appeal to swing voters using just what I used, the math. That's just the math. And so if you want to go toward the voters in the future who are going to vote a lot, it's people who are like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Not saying they're necessarily with her on policy, but that they don't view the kinds of caution that Democrats are constantly showing point. as a good form of politics. They yeah. think it's frustrating. And you might want to show that you have some guts. Huh. But that's not the right math. It never was. Joy Reid told me in an interview on the just in this chair, next to the chair, right I'm sitting in right now. I push back on it. That's not true. But she was sure. No, you just got to get the young voters to the polls and maybe African-Americans who didn't support Hillary, but would support presumably a more progressive candidate. We can now report on this thesis based on real-world data. The report is this. It was wrong. More wrong than anyone possibly imagined. Because Bernie Sanders and his progressive agenda absolutely did inspire the youth to come out. Oh, yeah. He rallied the young. He dominated with this growing demographic. But he got crushed by older, safer Joe Biden in a swell of turnout that left the political world gasping. 
All the turnout, all the increased turnout was driven by Biden, the safe guy, the swing voter guy. He was also the turnout guy. Turnout was better in 2016 nearly everywhere, and it even beat the vaunted 2008 primary turnout in places like South Carolina and Virginia. 2008 turnout in Virginia under a million. 2020, 1.3 million people voted in the Democratic primary. We've certainly shown that it's not Bernie Sanders and certainly not Elizabeth Warren who's going to excite those supposed sleeper cell voters to come out in the general because he wasn't even the guy who could do it in the primary. Here's Cornell Belcher, former Obama pollster on Meet the Press in June. He was asked to comment on an article by David Brooks in the New York Times titled, Dems, please don't drive me away. The dynamic pulling the party leftward that David Brooks article began. I would never in a million years vote for Donald Trump. So my question to Democrats is, will there be a candidate I could vote for? Here's Cornell Belcher. This annoys me to no end. Look, to all respect to to Brooks, we don't need you, right? (laughs) We don't we don't need you, right? We need to rebuild Obama coalition, right? So so when you when you talk about who who's problematic, and this is my problem with 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 Joe Biden, I fear with Joe Biden that he's Hillary 2.0. Chuck, I sat in focus group rooms with the younger uh, voters, particularly younger voters of color. And, you know, they're not going to make the binary choice between lesser or two evils. And I think th- the problem is Joe Biden becomes Hillary 2.0. We need a candidate who can inspire and build back those, bring back those young people and rebuild the Obama coalition, a majority coalition, back-to-back majorities built on young people and expanding the electorate, not going back to the 1992 campaign. But Joe Biden is the candidate who lays claim to that coalition. In a way, the actual results were quite a rebuke. A rebuke to, we need the progressive to excite the people. But it was such a rebuke that it was almost ruinous of the experiment. Maybe turnout is more important than voter switching. It's just that Joe Biden is the key to turnout? Who knew? Now, I just quoted you some cable news podcasts where the segments are usually shorter and uh, you have to move quickly on to other points. But if you delved into the world of politically minded or progressive partisan podcasts or the occasional progressive YouTube channel, (laughs) like the Young Turks or the Ring of Fire. Whoa, Nelly, spectacularly wrong. Here's the Ring of Fire with host Farron Cousins talking to Mike Figueredo in September of 2019. I'm terrible at predictions, but if I had to guess just based on the trajectory, I think he's going to be there until Iowa. I think he's hanging on until New Hampshire. I think that Super Tuesday is the day where this is really going to come down to like the top two, top three candidates. And it's kind of shaping up like I don't want to speak too soon, but it seems like this is shaping up to be a race between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, which is fantastic. You know, these are the better candidates in the race. There's a lot of pretty solid candidates running. But, um, you know, it, it would be nice to see Joe Biden drop out because out of all of the candidates, I feel like he would probably be the weakest choice against Donald Trump. And I understand that early polling is showing that he does perform relatively well against Trump. I just feel like we need someone who will excite the base, not go after Republicans and moderates. We need someone to recognize that we are in a polarized political environment. And what you have to do is play to your strength, get that base out, get them excited, register new voters. And really, the people who can do that are the left-wing candidates. So I really, the sooner the better. Luckily, those guys, that Michael Moore guy, all the women and men you heard from will be looking into cameras in the future or taking to Twitter and saying, 
I guess I was wrong. I admit it. No, they won't be doing that. I mean, most won't. Maybe Chris and Joy might revisit their analysis, but everyone else will actually probably never even be asked to account for their flawed reasoning. Flawed and motivated reasoning. In fact, if I know human nature, they will convince themselves that they didn't even think the things they thought, let alone say them out loud so baldly and incorrectly. And that is why I provide for you this service. That is why I play this tape. I offer accountability and maybe advice. When your strategic advice so neatly aligns with your preferred candidate, don't just run with it. Double check. That is the exact time to say, huh, let's make sure, because you're more likely to think that you're right if you want to be right. So you come up with a strategy that justifies the candidacy of your preferred candidate. Of course, in order to learn this lesson, you need to realize that you were wrong. And for some pundits, like schlumpy documentarians from Michigan, that is not exactly on brand. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She thinks the key to winning the next election is exciting Trump voters to go to the polls and vote for him. Just give them the wrong date. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He also hosts the Toe Ring of Fire podcast, Flaming Hot Political Takes from the Ground Up. The gist. By the way, if you're unexcited to get out and vote Trump out of office, you may be a worse person than you think you are. Just saying. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu. And thanks for listening.